August of 2014, uh, about two blocks east of here, we met at Richard's old house, and it was 25 of us, and we just sat down and prayed, right? We had in our hearts that the Lord would have us start a church, and so we got all of the people at the time that we thought would want to be a part of it, and we just sat um, and prayed that God would do his thing. And so we said, hey, before we launch the church, we're going to take this first year and just pray. Um, June of 2015, we started to meet two blocks west of here. And it's so funny. We came in here this morning, and um, Swoop asked me at 8 a.m. He's like, John, did y'all think that y'all would be in here um, in four years, that things would be like this, that you would look out and see faces? Um, And I said, no. Uh, So much so that when we were in our last spot, they're like, we've got this big sanctuary up here, um, and we've got this basement down here and we said we'll take the basement because we have 50 people and we're not really sure how many more are going to come and uh, I'm grateful that uh, God does more than what we can ask uh, or think and so today is just a huge day for us because um, as I look out at y'all and see the faces of y'all here I think of stories I think of the beautiful ways that so many of us have come to uh, faith. And so it still feels like a family. We're glad that y'all are here. We love you tremendously. Um, and so that you don't have a bad taste in your mouth when you leave here, I'm going to get started so that you don't get out of here too late. So uh, if y'all would stand with me as we read from God's word, Habakkuk chapter two, uh, if you're going to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, right? Uh, page 514 it'll be there um i'm gonna read the whole chapter it's gonna be here on the screen so let's let's read this comes on the heels of habakkuk giving his doubts to god and what he says is this i'll stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower i will watch to see what he will say to me And what I should reply about my complaint, verse 2, the Lord answered me. What gracious words, that God doesn't have to give an answer for anything, but he does. Write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets so that one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the right one will live by his faith. Moreover, wine betrays an arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol and is and like death. He is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. Won't all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him? They will say, Woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you will become spoiled for them since you have plundered many nations. All the peoples who remain will plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all who live in them. 
Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high to escape the grasp of disaster. You have planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the people labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink and expose your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory for your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities and all who live in them. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image a teacher of lies for the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes idols that cannot speak woe to him who says to wood wake up or to mute stone come alive can it teach look it may be plated with gold and silver yet there is no breath in it at all but the Lord is in his holy temple let the whole earth be silent in his presence. Let's pray. God, you speak and we listen. Help us to do just that today. And would you remind us, Father, that when we listen and wait on your word, Father, it has a way of erasing the anxiety and the things that we worry about so much that we can't get past. Would you remind us of the joy that comes from waiting. Help us to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't y'all take your seats? What do you do when what God says doesn't line up with who it is that he says that he is? Last week we talked about doubt. And all that doubt is, doubt is these mismatched socks in between our expectations of God and our experience of what God does. Doubt is that conflict. It's those two things that should go together, but they don't. That there's sometimes God says that he's something, but what he does in the world doesn't line up with what he does. And when that takes place, it causes doubt inside of us. Right. If you weren't here last week, we just said, hey, doubt is not a bad thing. Right. If you're here and you're somebody that doubts or does not know or you're you're not quite sure where it is that you stand with God, it's not a bad thing. Every one of us has doubts, especially those of us that have grown up in context where we may not have been as privileged and we tend to hear about the goodness of God but all we see is the badness of the world what that does is it springs up doubt inside of all of us 
Doubt's not a bad thing. It's there. And what we talked through last week is he. What we don't want to do is we don't want to let our doubts direct us. We want to direct our doubts. If faith is fire and doubt is wind, wind can either blow out and extinguish a fire or if wind is directed in the right way, what it can do is it can set a spark into a forest fire. And the way that we do that with our doubts is we turn all of our doubts into a dialogue with God. That when we doubt the goodness of God, we take those doubts and concerns to him and we talk to him about those things. God invites us to bring our doubts to him. This is how the book of Habakkuk starts with one man that brings his doubts to God, trying to turn his problems with God into praise of him. And let me tell y'all, doubt, when we turn our doubt into a dialogue with God, that's a great first step to take to deepen our faith. But here's what I want you to know. It's not the only step. Because as soon as you start to turn your doubts into a dialogue with God, that first step often feels like a step in the wrong direction. Do you know why? Because sometimes God responds with things that you don't want to hear. And and, and that helps us know that we aren't just talking to ourselves, because we'll tell ourselves things that we want to hear. But when you actually start to talk with God or talk to somebody else, what you find out is that often they'll reply and give you things that you don't want to hear. That's chapter two. So the question here is what happens when you give God your doubts and he doubles your concerns? What happens when you deposit your doubts with God? And you withdraw it with interest and you say, this is a lot bigger uh, than what I gave you. What do you do there? Do you know what we call that? Worry. God, I gave you this to take care of. And now you gave me a bigger problem than the one that I had before I even started to talk to you. And do you know what we tend to do with our worry? We start working. We take it back from God. Do you know what we do with anxiety? We start to try to outact it, outwork it. Have you ever dropped your car off at the shop for them to change your tires and you come back with a $5,000 bill because they say, your, your whole car's messed up. You got to replace the whole thing, right? You're frustrated because you said, I gave you this small thing to do, and now you're telling me that I need a new car. That's fine, right? I'll just take it back and do the work on it myself. And you start to work on it yourself. And do you know what it does? When you try to outact your anxiety, it doesn't relieve stress. It causes more of it. Start to act out. Have you ever been stressed about something and you find yourself in a relationship with somebody and you just get angry at everything and you have to come back and say, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm, 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 I'm just stressed. I'm just worked up. The same is true when you and I give our doubts to God and he gives us more to be concerned about. We start to worry. And what I want you to know or what I want you to see here is you're never going to outwork your worry. You are never going to outact your anxiety. Habakkuk chapter 2 is going to help us see this. That here's how you get past your worry about God's word. 
you turn your worry about God's word into waiting on it. You turn your worry into waiting. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes in the Bible, the chapter breakdowns are helpful. I feel like this one is so helpful because what you can do is take the first verse and the last verse of the chapter, and it creates these bookends. So let's read it right here, Habakkuk 2, verse 1. It says this. I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaints. So he just starts off and says, God, I gave you my concerns. I didn't like what you told me at first, so here's what I will do. I'm just going to stand and wait. Look here at verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. This chapter starts and ends with silence. To help you and I know that sometimes with our worry, the solution is not for you and I to work and to try to figure things out by human wisdom that are only going to be made plain by divine revelation. When we're tempted to worry, sometimes what we need to do is wait. If chapter one is all about giving you and I permission to speak up, chapter two is giving you and I instruction to listen up. Habakkuk comes to God and says, God, there's injustice in my city. There is injustice among people who claim to be yours that make it hard to trust you. What are you going to do about it? And God says, I'm actually going to raise up a more wicked nation to judge yours. And he says, God, I don't like that plan. And so he says, I'm going to wait and see how you respond. His concern is, God, how's that justice? It seems like you're doing nothing about the injustice in the place that I live in. How's that justice? And God says, me doing nothing That's not what I'm trying to do. God just says this, I'm doing nothing right now. Nothing and nothing right now are not the same thing. Nothing is I'm passive and I'm not going to address it. Nothing right now says I'm going to address it, but you're going to have to wait. Here's how we wait on God. There's at least three things that I think from this text that we have to learn when it comes to God's justice in the world. And that's the very first one is this. God's justice in the present is often delayed. In the present, God's justice is delayed. It's not here yet. Uh, One of the things that you learn with kids is kids have short-term memories. So if you don't want to do something for them, do you know what you can tell them? Wait. Later. And you say wait and later long enough, and they forget that you made a promise in the first place and you're free from it, right? (laughs) I think some of us have grown up with friends or with fathers that have done that to us. And it worked when we were kids. 
But then as we grew up, we started to find out that when he said wait, in our minds, it was him saying, I won't. And some of us have carried that over into the way that we look at God so that when God says wait, we equate that to him saying, I won't. And God starts this off and says, listen, when it comes to justice in this world, when it comes to justice against the badness of the backdrop of the world, God says his present justice is delayed. But just because it's delayed, it doesn't mean that it's denied. Look here at verse 2 through 5. The Lord answered me, write down this vision. Clearly inscribe it on tablets so one may easily read it. If you've been in church some time, you may have heard it put, write the vision and make it plain so that the one who reads it may run with it. That, that's where this comes from. Here's the context. Here's what God's saying. God's preparing him and says, I'm getting ready to do something. And I want you to know it's definite. So definite that I don't want you to just pencil me in. I want you to get stone tablets and inscribe it, write it down. Habakkuk had access to paper. God says, with this one, I want you to get the tablets and inscribe it. I want you to take your time with it because it is going to be sure. Verse 3, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. God's saying, it's going to come. I've already set a time that I'm going to make things right. And I want you to know it's not going to lie. Take this, run with it, and proclaim what God says that he will do. But then he says this, though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. God is telling him his justice is definite, but it's going to be delayed. And what verse 4 and 5 lays out is this. Delay is going to be the dividing line in between how God is going to separate the wicked from the righteous. Here's what I mean by that. Look, verse 4. Look, his ego is inflated. God's starting to talk about the, the folks that have done wrong. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Let me explain that. Integrity is a builder's term. And what that means is that, hey, the outside looks like the inside, right? So there was a home here in the West End that was sold three years ago. It looked beautiful and pristine on the outside. A lady bought it for a lot of money, comes in, doesn't get an inspection done, pays her money, and then comes in and finds out that the foundation is trash. That building had no integrity. The appearance on the outside looked better than what was actually there. And what God's saying is this. When he delays to bring about his justice, what you'll find are people that think that because God has delayed to bring his justice, he's not going to bring it. But then he goes on and says this, look, but the righteous one will live by faith. And here's what he means by faith. The person that's righteous, God is going to define righteousness in the Bible, not by how well you work, but by how well you wait. That's what faith is. Faith is saying, all right, God, I'm not going to put my stock in the appearance and the way that things look. 
Because what you've actually said about this thing is different than how it looks. So regardless of how it looks, I'm going to live by faith. Here's what I mean by that. God is merely explaining the way that it's always been with his people. One of the things that you find about God's people is that all of God's people are always waiting people. None of God's people have everything that God promises that he'll give them right now. So it forces them to trust their ears, what God says, more than their eyes, more than what they can see. Adam and Eve, God said, things were messed up, but I love you. I'm going to send a promised son into the world that's going to set things right. They thought it was Cain, but it was Jesus that would come thousands of years later. Do you know what they had to do? Wait. Abraham, God promised him a son. And changed his name, said, you are now the father of many nations. And do you know how many kids he had? Zero. Do you know what he had to do? Wait. Do you know what he didn't do well? Wait. (laughs) So he gets anxious. He starts to try to work to bring about what God says. He has a child by means that God didn't say. And do you know what God said to him? You're going to have to wait. Joseph, we talked about this, was sold into slavery when God said that he would leave. And do you know what he had to do for 13 years? Wait. David, do you know what he had to do while while he was waiting on God to bring his promise? Wait. Lazarus is sick. They bring word to Jesus, and what he says is, this won't end in death. Lazarus died. Do you know what he had to do? Wait. Jesus said, I'm coming to die for the sins of the world. Jesus said, I'm coming to set this world in order. People followed him and trailed him. And do you know what they did to him? They killed him. And do you know what he told them? Y'all are just going to have to wait. And three days later, he got up from the grave in all power. God's people are waiting people. Not just on the promises of God, but listen, here's what it means to live by faith. Is that we take God at his word, even when our performance contradicts what it is that God said about us. You know, you look at the Bible and what you see is that God saves people from some pretty bad stuff, but it's often after the pronouncement of faith and righteousness that he chooses to record their greatest acts of sin and falling away. Genesis 15, Abraham was a man declared to be righteous in the sight of God because of his faith. And after that declaration... He goes outside of God's means to have a kid in the way that God didn't say. Jacob is, has his name changed and is righteous in God's sight. And it's after that he responds with apathy to the rape of his daughter. David is called a man after God's own heart. And it's after that that he sins with Bathsheba. 
for those of us that have surrendered our lives to the Lord and walk through life and feel that weight of God, my performance doesn't seem to match up to my profession or to your profession about me. What are you going to trust more? God's word or how well you work? Are you going to trust what God says even if your life betrays the contrary? Or are you going to wait for God to fully do what he says that he'll do in your life? Or are you going to spend your time trying to outwork your worry? God, I don't feel like you love me. I got to go to church more. I got to give more. I got to read more. I got to sing louder. Nah. The righteous wait. And here's what faith does. Faith does two things. Faith is honest. About the present. But it's hopeful about the future. Faith is saying. Things are not now as they should be. There is no virtue in living in denial. As if everything is perfect. Because it's not. But what faith says is. I'm never going to allow my honesty about my present failures to eclipse my hopefulness about God's future promises. And what he's saying is that the way that God works this out is he delays on his promise. God's promises are going to come to pass based on his faithfulness, not yours. What I love about this is that God tells him to write this on stone so that it lasts, and it's a simple message so that the one that reads it can run with it, so that somebody can run, read this, and then go and tell everybody else about it. Here's what good theology is supposed to do. Good theology is not meant for you to win arguments. Good theology is supposed to be a refreshment for weary souls. Good theology is supposed to be like a drink of water where you can run and see a bunch of people that are honest about the state of the world and its pitfalls and their angst and their worry. And that you can say, listen, I know God's justice is delayed, but it's coming. It's coming. Yo, I know that you're trying to outwork your worry, but you don't have to work. Just wait. Be at peace. Be at rest. Good theology. Is meant to remind us, listen, you aren't the first one to worry in the way that you have. And you're not going to be the last one. You're in a room with a bunch of people. I don't care how well they smiled on their way in here. But there's something that they are worrying about right now. Or if they lost, would make them worry and find themselves in complete despair. What we do is we take this message, God's justice. It's definite. But it is delayed. And I only bring this up and start this way and spend so much time on it. Because whenever you talk about this concept of faith, people tend to think that faith is inherently a Christian concept. But I want you to know, faith is a human concept. What I mean is this. Everybody lives by faith in something. Everybody lives by faith. The fact that you're sitting down right now, that's a faith walk. 
None of y'all came in here. None of y'all came in here throughout this past week and said, all right, I'm going to sit here on Sunday. So let me get my tools and check the dexterity of the pews and make sure there's integrity that I'm not going to fall in. You walked in and you sat down. The fact that you are here, if your intention was to come to Cornerstone Church and not the old church that met here, you're here because you took somebody's word that says, we're not going to be there this week, we're going to be here this week. And if you disregarded their word, you drove to the last spot and found that big sign that said, we moved, and you said, oh, snap, I forgot that we moved. (laughs) I see a few of y'all that were late. Listen, all that that was, was you living by faith in somebody's word. And to the extent that you were obedient to that word, you found yourselves in a place. That, that's all that it means to live by faith. It's saying, hey, God's provided his words, and I'm going to have so much faith in what God says that I'm going to live by it. And so what I want you to know is it's not inherently a New Testament concept. It's not like people in the Old Testament were saved by God's law and now we're saved by faith. Everybody's always been saved by faith. God's provided a word of how we can be made right with him and brought into a relationship with him. And to the extent that we say, God, I believe you and not God, I believe myself. We live by faith and we walk in God's blessing. So Habakkuk starts off. And says, listen, when you're tempted to worry about God's word, you wait on God's word. And the reason why we wait is, one, because you and I find out that God's justice is delayed. But it will take place. What God says will happen, will happen. That's the way that God does. God's people are waiting people. If you are waiting for God to do something then you've joined in line with the rest of God's people everywhere throughout all times. This doesn't stop here because Habakkuk has a very serious concern. His concern is this, God, I asked you to do something about the injustice, and what you told me is that you're actually going to be the one that plans out using greater injustice. So I asked you to take care of what's wrong, and you told me that there's going to be more wrong. How can you be right in that, God? It seems like there's a group of people that are evil that you'll use, but it seems like there's a bunch of people that are going to get away with it. And here's what God's saying. Here's how we turn our worry about God's word into a waiting on it. We're reminded that God's justice is delayed in the present, but the next thing that we see here is that God's justice is displayed in the form of a promise. So if we want to see God's perfect justice, there is not going to be a nation on this earth that we can look at and see it perfectly displayed there. We're only going to see it perfectly displayed in a promise. I've used this before. But God's promises are like checks. The money is not there, but it's as good as being there if you have it in your possession. But here's what he wants you to know. God's promise for justice in the world is a post-data check. 
Y'all remember those? Where you wrote the, the check, you said, hey, don't cash this until the 15th, right? <laughs> and we would say it because we didn't have money in the account. That's not what God's saying. God's not waiting for somebody to pay him back so that he can put justice in the world. God's saying, I've got a specific plan for why I don't punish all evil right now, but God is saying, I will do it. If you read verses 6 to 20, what you'll find out is that there's five times that God's going to use this word, woe. Woe to them. Woe to them. Woe to them. And we, we don't have time to go through each one. But that word woe is better translated like aha. 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 It's better translated like God saying, not just that judgment is coming, but to everybody that does evil. Even on a national scale, it's God saying, I see you. I notice. It hasn't escaped my grasp. You see it in verse 6, right? Woe to him who amasses what is not his. How much longer? And loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Here's what they would do back then. They would give somebody a loan, knowing that they couldn't pay it back. And then they would come to collect on that loan, knowing that they didn't have the money to pay them back. And then what they would do is they would have them sell off their stuff. And if they couldn't sell off their stuff, they would make them slaves. And it's a group of folks saying, I'm weighed down by this. What are you going to do? And here's what I want you to know. There's two things in the world that do not change. The collective nature of humanity and the collective nature of God. This is not new to God and it didn't stop with them. The West End, 30312 until they have the means to build a $1.4 billion stadium, repossess these houses, and then charge them at inflated rates to keep a community enslaved in poverty. That's why Detroit is the way that it is. And what God's saying, same there as he sees now, God's saying, I see that. Verse 7, and God saying this, won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up, then you will become spoiled for them since you have plundered many nations. All the peoples who remain will plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence against lands, cities, and all those who live in them. If you've been a victim of this kind of injustice, there's hope here in the Bible that the God of the Bible doesn't just care about the big stuff. He cares about that small stuff. And what God's saying is, I'm going to make it right. But it's coming in the form of a promise. 
Verse 9, woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house, to place his nest on high, to escape the grasp of disaster. Drop down to verse 11. For the stones will cry out from the wall, and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. God is saying, at this time there was a community of folks that stole people's property and used it to build a house to keep them sheltered from the things that they would have to face. And what God's saying is, no, no, those stones, those things that you stole, you think that it's a nest, but all of those things, God's saying, you should have destroyed the evidence because it's going to implicate you. Verse 12, look, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Woe to the person that comes and builds their security and wealth on the back of people that they've brought over as slaves to where the buildings are literally placed in the foundation of the blood of people that have been violently treated. God's saying, God's saying, he sees that. He notices. He's going to do something about it. Verse 15, woe to him who gives his neighbor drink, pouring out your wrath and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. Woe to the person who takes advantage of people through drink. You may even think of communities with pawn shops that are right next to to, uh, liquor stores. Get them drunk so you can take advantage. God's saying, I see that. Look at verse 16. You will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink. Expose your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter disgrace will cover your glory. What that means, disgrace, cover your glory. Glory is supposed to be the outward splendor of somebody. This is actually a wordplay saying, Those of you that made folks drunk so that you could take advantage of them, God's saying, you're going to be, I'm going to force you to drink down my wrath so much that you're ashamed. You are literally going to vomit on the outside of that outward glory. Y'all may look at this and see, man, God sounds angry and frustrated and upset. That's because he is. We don't serve a passive God that just sits up in the heavens smiling at the injustice and the inhumanity that men treat men with. God looks at it all. And just because he hasn't dealt with it all fully right now doesn't mean that he won't. God is trying to bring him in and saying he sees it all and he has a plan for it. I bring all of that up to say, When it comes to God's wrath, sometimes we like to paint the God of the Bible 
as a God of love or a God of wrath. But if you don't embrace the wrath of God against evil, do you know what you do? You take away hope from people that have been ungodly or who have, you take away the hope from the people who have been oppressed in this world in an ungodly way. God's wrath, God's anger and injustice is a source of hope for people that have been victims of that injustice. That they can sit with the fact that God hasn't forgotten me. God hasn't overlooked me like the lawmakers or the people in power right now. I was sharing with you all about a memoir that I read last week, and I want to read you a portion from it. It comes from Itabari and Jerry, and she talks about when she goes back to her hometown, or when she goes back to her hometown that her grandfather was from, and she tries to investigate his murder that was done wrongly, and they were unfairly judged and compensated. And what she says is this, the reason why she did that was this. In going back to Bainbridge, I felt I was tracking down a thousand anonymous bigots whose acts would never be known, whose guilt or innocence would never be judged. Men who killed a black man and laugh, even men who, without malice, killed a black man and sighed knowing it ultimately didn't matter. When I returned home, my aunt Erlene told me that if she met Harper today, she would shake his hand. He's the man that killed her grandfather. That's what daddy would have wanted, she said. Turn the other cheek. We can't live in this world without hate. And, and what she says is this. I know no such charity. I want a thousand anonymous bigots to know that somebody's grandchild might someday knock at their door. What she's saying is she comes home. She tells her aunt and her aunt said, your granddaddy would have just wanted us to shake their hand. Turn the other cheek to show mercy. And what she said was, I don't want to do that. I want justice. I want everybody that's guilty of any of these types of crimes to know that somebody is coming to make things right. I don't just want to let them slide. And in her mind, what she was saying or what she thought is that you can't have both at the same time. You either have to have mercy or you have to have justice. But you can't have both. And if I have to choose, I want justice. I think she's half right. I think you can't have justice and mercy at the same time. But what her cry was that you know, justice is hope for people that have been done wrong. That if I can't have God's goodness 
completely in this life, at least let me have hope that someday he's going to make things right. And what Habakkuk 2 tells us is that we can have that hope. But it comes by faith. God's perfect justice is going, it is displayed right now, but it's in the form of a promise in his word that one day he'll make things right. And what it requires from us is to wait on it. You may say, John, I want to believe all of that, but you haven't lived the life that I have. You have not felt the weight of oppression that is on my back constantly. This weight is too heavy for me to wait. I can't wait on God. I need to find somebody that's going to do something right now. Or you may be in here, and you may be somebody that as you read all of these woes, you may find yourselves guilty of some of the things that are on this list. And you may say, now, John, I'm fearful. Because if God really is going to do this to people that have done this, then I'm in trouble. I've taken advantage of people. I've loaned out money. I've I've been a part of a system that's loaned out money knowing that it was going to do folks wrong. John, I look at this list, and if God is really going to do this, then I'm in trouble. How, How is any of that good news? For those of us that are weighed down, how is it good news to tell us to wait? You don't know what I've been through. For those of us that are going to be objects of God's wrath, how is it good news to tell us that it's certainly going to come? It's good news the way that everything else in the Bible is good news. It's only good news as we look at the life of Jesus. Look, God's justice, it is delayed in the present. God's justice is displayed in the form of a promise. But here's what I want you to know. God's perfect justice has been deposited in a person. You look at the life of Jesus and what you find out was in his life, nothing was as it seemed. For most of his life, he lived a pretty uneventful life. That's why when the gospel writers start to write about his life, they write about his birth. Luke will write about that one time when he was 12 years old and he got left behind and he wowed everybody with all the stuff that he knew. But that first part is uneventful. Until. He meets John, he's baptized, a voice from heaven. God looks down and says this, this is my perfect son in whom I'm well pleased. If you heard God say that about somebody, what do you think the rest of their life should have looked like? We would think, ah, it should be trouble free. God's pleased with him. God is going to protect him. But do you know what you find in the life of Jesus? Jesus uniquely felt the weight of oppression. God's justice was delayed in his life. Jesus didn't have much by the way of possessions, but Jesus was plundered. All he had was a good name, and everybody spent their time trying to take that good name from him. Jesus was auctioned off by one of his best friends. Jesus was literally sold 
His life was sold for money. The Romans and the religious leaders crucified him. They built the back of their kingdom on his blood, falsely accused, imprisoned, put to death. And on the cross, the only person that came to display the glory of God was left shameful. If you're in here and you feel like God is absent or things have gone wrong and you just feel this weight of things that have gone wrong, I want you to know you have solidarity with Jesus. Jesus has experienced it in a way where as you take those things to him, what he says back is, me too. I know. You're not alone. You're not by yourself. But here's the unique thing about Jesus. Not only did he take the weight of oppression, But Jesus took on the fate of the oppressors. All of these woes that God said will come back on the people that have done wrong. They were deposited on Jesus. So you talk about being plundered throughout his life. They plundered his good name. And as he's making his way to the cross, all he has left are the clothes on his back. And do you know what they did with those? They took him. He was testified against falsely by the very people that he brought close to him. The cup of God's wrath that was meant for all of those that would take advantage of somebody else. Jesus agonized in the garden knowing that he was going to be the one to drink that cup fully. Even the fate of the idolater at the end that cries out to a God that can't speak back on the cross. Jesus, not for his sin, but for ours, cried out to God and only got silence. And that word that God said, this is my good son in whom I'm well pleased. It seemed like it was buried when he was put in that tomb. But do you know what God's people do when God makes a promise? We wait. And they waited on Friday. And the whole earth fell silent and waited on Saturday. Until Sunday morning, Jesus got up from the tomb, proclaiming to everybody that has been oppressed, God's going to make things right one day and I'm the down payment. So you look at me and you can find out that waiting on God does work. And then what he does is he looks out at everybody that's been guilty of that oppression and is feeling that weight of being judged for their sin. Do you know what he says to them? God was pleased with me and I took your fate. God's justice was deposited on me so that God's pleasure that he claimed I had, you could freely have. Jesus trades places with those of us. So those of us that 
or fretting the hard life that we have to live, we can be reminded that although things don't look like they should, it's not going to be like this forever. And those of us that are fearful to approach God because we know that we've done wrong and done things that have displeased them, we don't have to be fearful because God's anger and wrath, the specific, the brutal, the comprehensive wrath was all completely poured out on Jesus. He drank it all so that you and I could be free. So that in spite of the way that we might perform, we can be reminded that God, I can be honest about my shortcomings. I can be honest about the fact that I want to believe in you, but I don't. I want to live for you, but sometimes I fall and I mess up. We can be honest just so long as you speak hopefully about the future. Just so long as you say, how I am right now does not determine my destiny where I'll end up. That is completely, utterly confidently mine by faith. I just don't want you to believe the lie that you either have to choose honesty or hopefulness. If you live an honest life about the way that you are right now, without hope of what God says that he will do, you will be utterly depressed. If you live hopeful about what God will do, but you weren't honest about your own life and the way that the world is, you'll live in denial, completely unable to relate to people that are feeling this weight. But if you choose to be honest about the way that things are, And speak hopefully about what God will do based on what we've already seen in Christ. Never letting your honesty eclipse your hopefulness. Then you'll live in this world as one who has the strength to wait on God. Not to worry. Not to act out of your anxiety. But to let every piece of doubt that comes your way be turned into dialogue with God. And you'll speak up. And even when God doesn't answer you the way that you hope, you'll listen up and let him finish. Our hope doesn't come from our faithfulness, but his. And in Christ, we see he's absolutely faithful. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make us people that are completely, utterly, and confidently filled with hope, Father. I pray that when things don't uh, line up, when... Our lives don't add up that worry wouldn't be the thing that drives us to work for your approval or for your love, but we would be those that sit back and wait, Father. I pray that any anxiety that comes our way would just lead us to be more attentive to your words, Father. Help us to be those that are willing to sit silent in your presence until you reassure us from your word, Father. We give you the glory. Help us to be those that wait confidently in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.